Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. Hey, good morning, Mercy family. Good morning, you guys. Uh, listen, 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel 8, if you got your Bible, as you're getting there, I kind of want to catch you up on something pretty big in the life of our church this week. Uh, every day for about a month now, we've been praying from 1 Samuel 3.10, Speak, Lord, your servants are listening. And the reason that we are so committed to praying this, and I wanted us praying this, because y'all, the Lord has given us a mission as a church to make disciples of Jesus, to help introduce people to Jesus and help them follow Jesus. And y'all, that, that's that's why we're here. But it's seven years old as a church. Our church is seven years old now. There's a, a danger that we could get complacent going through the motions of church together instead of being dependent on the Lord to accomplish his mission through us. It's so easy to drift into comfort and out of mission. So I think this season of prayer is vital for us as a church. It's a vital moment for us to renew our dependence on God to the level that it was when we started this church, where it was like, all right, Lord, if you don't do this, it's just not going to happen. Well, that's still true today. If you don't move among us, nothing else is going to happen. Now, look, I know most of you were not here when we started Mercy Church seven years ago. That's why we're actually in this season of prayer, so that we can all be renewed together in who we are as a church. We want to be a church that's hungry for God to move among us, who's so dependent on the Lord to accomplish his mission that we say like Moses, Lord, if you're not going with us, please don't send us because I don't want to go. I don't want to go unless you are going. And so we want to ask him to use us how we will. That's what we're doing here, y'all. And so, again, seven years ago, it was a church of 60 people. I know it's a different thing now. And so I believe God has brought you here, brought you here for a mission to build up his church so that we are better equipped for that mission. I believe more than ever in our vision to see a gospel awakening here in Charlotte carried to the ends of the earth. So I told you a month ago, we're going to gather on February 22nd for a night of prayer and worship. I, know, I do not often get you guys together all in, you know, outside of just Sunday morning because I want you in the community on mission, but I sense a need for this. I think the Lord is doing a work among us, and I think the 22nd might be an Ebenezer-type night for some of y'all. Well, I don't know. We're going to be at both of our campuses, 7 to 9 p.m. We're going to worship. We're going to pray. Some of you have seen God move this past month since you've been praying. We're going to give you a chance to share that with the church and encourage the church. Some of you are, are sick. You're going through some kind of physical ailment. We're going to take time for just to follow James 5 and have the elders pray and anoint you, pray over you and anoint you. Uh, we're going to have confession and worship. Our teams have put a lot of care into this. So I invite you. The only thing you really need to do is fast on the 22nd and then come worship with us. Jesus linked prayer and fasting so much together in the training of his disciples because abstaining from food was a way to depend on God to sustain you and to depend on him and listen to him. So we're going to fast and pray. Speak, Lord, your servants are listening. And we'll see what he has for us, all right? 
Lord willing, we'll walk away united and expectant for God to move among us this year. All right. With that said, Sunday morning, today, this moment, we're in 1 Samuel 8. And here's what's going to happen today, y'all. Today, the Bible is going to work like a mirror. In fact, the New Testament author James says this is how the Bible works a lot of the time. It shows us ourselves. I'm going to tell you, it shows us our true selves. Like shows us a lot of the ugly that's going on, okay? This is not like the mirror at the gym where you do a couple reps and you're like, I look fly, I look good. No, this is not that, okay? This is something very different. Here's what's going to happen. We're going to see kind of the main character today is going to be the people of Israel. And what's going to happen is the people of Israel are going to again turn away from God and again, experience the bad fruit of that rebellion. And if you've been with us as we've been in 1 Samuel, you're like, wait, wait, didn't that just happen? Didn't they just do that and then repent like last week at chapter 7? Yes. And here they are again. I thought about titling the sermon. Oops, we did it again, right? But decided a, a better title that captures the heart of both this passage and we're going to see really 8 through 12, chapters 8 through 12, are one section where Israel demands a king, God gives them a king, and then Israel repents for a bad demand, okay? So we're going to see today, chapters 8 and 12, where Israel's the focus. Next week, we're going to meet King Saul, the king that God gave them, as we look at chapters 9 through 11. But the heart of the passage today, your one action step for today, is really simply this. Let's go to God. Let's go to God. Now, depending on how long you've walked with God, you will be tempted to think as you look at Israel's story, like, they did it again? Can they not get it together? You might think, how many times are they going to do this same thing? They reject God. They get stubborn. They reject God. They discover how terrible life is without God. So then they repent, turn back to God, and they experience blessing under God's authority. And you would say, why don't they just stay there under God's authority and cut out all that trouble? And that's precisely the point where the Bible turns on mirror mode, okay? And says, okay, ask that question again, but this time ask it of yourself. Why do you go everywhere else but God? Why don't you go to God? Why do you keep rejecting him and running away? I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, so we'll get into it. Like I said, I'm going to show you chapters 8 and 12 and show you how to go to God. As we go through it, my encouragement for you is just to let the Holy Spirit do his thing. As we hold up this mirror, be willing to receive whatever conviction the Lord might be stirring in you, but be equally ready to receive the mercy of God that he is going to offer to you. Okay, don't let the enemy turn your conviction into guilt and shame because that ain't where we're going. Ain't where the Lord goes. So receive the conviction of God, then receive the mercy of God, because what makes amazing grace amazing, as the song says, it's that it saved a wretch like me. We're going to end in amazing grace. All right, we'll start in verse 1, chapter 8. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges over Israel. His firstborn sons name was Joel, and his second was Abiah. They were judges in Beersheba. However, his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned towards dishonest prophet, took bribes, perverted justice. 
now. Does this sound familiar? If it does, it's because Samuel watched this very thing happen as a young boy. His mentor, Eli, was the high priest, and Eli's sons did the same stuff. They were even more so corrupt that God decided no one from Eli's line would serve in the priesthood again. So corrupt were Eli's sons that God allowed the very Ark of the Covenant, the thing most sacred of Israel's possession, it represented God's very presence. God allowed this thing to be taken, to be stolen, and God indicated that his very presence, his glory, his presence was leaving with it. And Samuel, young boy prophet, saw all this happen, and then he oversaw Israel through Eli's demise, through the ark coming back to camp, so to speak. So last week, surely Samuel, of all the dads, has got to be extra alert about his sons. And yet the cycle continues. This is not uh, a main point in today's sermon. Just want you to know that just because you want to be a different kind of dad than the one you grew up with does not mean that you will be. Want is not going to get you there. It's going to be intentionality. It's going to be deep prayer. And I'll go ahead and say, even with intentionality and deep prayer, at some point, your sons are going to be their own men before the Lord. And you're going to have to be able to release them. Again, that's a, a different sermon, but it's true. Verse 4. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and went to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, look, you're old. I just wanted to pause there. Wouldn't you love that? Some of y'all are stuck with that. Look, you're old. At least, he's, at least they're blunt to the point. And your sons do not walk in your ways. Therefore, appoint a king to judge us the same as all the other nations have. We need to talk about this for a second. The elders of Israel have seen the future on the horizon. Samuel's not going to be with them forever. Sons are not the future. And so they ask their current leader to appoint a new leader. Samuel's like a, he's a combination of a prophet and a judge to use biblical terms, which means he's, he's speaking on God's behalf to the people and he's helping them understand how to follow God. They want something more than that. They want a king. And for a moment, I want you to see how this sounds like wisdom. Hey, we got a problem. The heir apparent's no good. We need a course of action. We've looked around and observed best practices in neighboring nations. They pretty much all have a king in charge. It's standard industry practice to have a king. We need this. Well, on top of that, Deuteronomy 17, 14 says that a king isn't, nece isn't necessarily a bad thing, that one day Israel would ask for that and God's going to... Um, grant that when it happens. It's not that God is anti-king. It's in his plan. It's not the idea of the king. It's the motivation behind it. It's this, like other nations. A king isn't, isn't inherently a bad idea. What's missing? What's missing is that they don't go to God for a solution to their problem. The first place they go is to the wisdom of the world. And this is where we need to see the Bible holding up a mirror to us. We tend to, y'all, we do. We tend to approach our problems mechanically before approaching them spiritually. I'm so guilty of this. Also convicted of this this week. So many times in my life, I encounter a problem. My first instinct is just, it's not to seek God. I'm embarrassed to say sometimes it's my last instinct. You ever been there? Like, all right, I got a problem. So what do I do? Well, first I'll look at all possible options. Then I will get counsel from others. I'll look at what some others have done. 
make a pros and cons list, read two Reddit articles written by little Cindy blogger Luhu, right? And then and only then, if it's still like, oh, there's just still no clear path forward, then I might say, you know what? I should pray about this. How backwards are we? But more likely to consult the trinity of Google, Alexa, and Siri before we are the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What? What's going on there? I think what's going on is actually just a product of a habit. We have trained ourselves to see prayer as something we do when everything else fails. Our theology has not come out of the Bible and made its way into our lives. Because you look at the theology of Scripture, and a prayer first, a go-to-God first mentality is all over it. Look at the Psalms. Psalm 116, I love the Lord because he's heard my appeal for mercy. Because he's turned his ear to me, I'll call out to him as long as I live. You look at Jesus, now he trained his disciples. Luke 18, if you were to go through it, you'd see, he told them a parable on the need for them to pray always. It's like, that's what you're doing. As much as you're breathing, you're praying, you're going to God and not giving up. Over and over in the epistles, the Apostle Paul says, we've not ceased to pray for you. And because that's so foreign to us to go to God first, we're like, ah, maybe he's exaggerating some. Or maybe he just had a habit of going to God first. First Thessalonians 5, pray constantly, pray always, without ceasing. Philippians 4, don't worry about anything, but in only the things that you really don't have any solutions to? No, in everything. Through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. I can get lost on this forever, but the point is, the teaching of the Bible is that the people of God have been granted access to his throne, to the throne room. We should stay there. That's where we need to camp out and live. To call ourselves the people of God and not make going to God through prayer and consulting God's word our very first move? To not do that is like, I'm trying to think of what's that. It's, it's like being a soldier in an army and making the last thing we do consulting what our orders are. So no, no, that's the first thing you do because that determines anything else you're going to do. Right, here's what I'm trying to say, y'all. Instead of praying when all else fails, we need to pray before anything else is tried. Instead of praying before all else, after all else fails, let's start there. Because when we live by the world's wisdom, I promise you, we'll get the world's results. And if we do that long enough, we might just live comfortable, reasonable, rational, godless lives, which is exactly what Satan hopes will happen to us. It's not that their demand wasn't rational. In light of the situation, what knowledge they had, it was rational. Sometimes our own proposed plans to navigate our circumstances can be, can be completely sensible and totally miss God. I'm not dissing logic. I'm a big fan of using the brains that God has given us, but I'm putting logic in its place, submitted to the kingship of the Lord. How do you go to God? Let's go to God first. Why don't we start with that as our first point? Let's go to God first. Ask him to put our, the logical minds he's given us to work in however he wants. All right, let's keep going. Verse six. When they said, give us a king to judge us, Samuel considered their demand wrong, so what did he do? He prayed. He prayed to the Lord. Notice that the contrast is very intentional. His first reaction was not to go, 
no, no, my rational logic says you're going to get in trouble. He said, no, you know what? I need to take this to the Lord. Instead of playing their game, he goes first to God. Verse 7, the Lord told him, listen, the people, listen to the people and everything they say to you. They have not rejected you. They've rejected me as their king. They're doing the same thing to you that they have done to me since the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, abandoning me and worshiping other gods. Samuel, this isn't new. I've been dealing with this stubbornness for generations, all the way back to when I brought them out of Egypt. Since the day I saved them, they've been rejecting me. God says I was to be their king. And they've rejected me for the solutions of the world, for the things they think they can control a little bit. There's a wonderful commentary if you want to dive more into 1 Samuel and study it throughout the week. A guy named Dale Ralph Davis wrote a beautiful commentary. It's called Looking on the Heart. But he was talking about this passage. He said, instead of looking to God for help, we're more interested in prescribing what form God's help must take. Our attention is not on God's deliverance in troubles, but on specifying the method by which he must bring that deliverance. Therefore, what we actually are trusting in is the method. We're not content with seeking a saving God. We need to desire and figure out how to direct how he will save us. That's Israel. Interested in God's help a little bit. After all, they're gone to Samuel. But they demand a king. They want God's help on their terms. God, let me tell you what I need. I got it figured out. <laughs> right? God, I look around and what they have, what I see out there, that would be best for me. I've got this figured out, God. I already know the answer to my prayer. I just need you to do your thing and help me out a little bit. It's kind of like the way I used to treat my, uh, I had a younger brother, Matt. Matt's six foot five, okay? Um, I know what you're thinking. What happened? Okay. He got the height. I got the looks. Everybody's in agreement on that, all right? Um, but <laughs> poor Matt did get stuck in our home with, hey, man, that thing up there, will you reach up there and get it? Like, all the time, right? Like, Matt, I know what I need, but I cannot reach it. So extend your go-go gadget arms up there to that place that I cannot get and get that for me. I already know what I need, all right? Uh, that's the way you, well, I still treat him that way sometimes. I know it's not okay, but what's not okay is for me to treat God that way. Like, I'm using my brother Matt to get what I want, Right? Same thing happens to us in our relationship with God. We use God to get what we want. God is not my king in that way. He's just like an extra strength butler of some kind. They want their way. They demand God make their way happen. Now look how God responds. All right, I'm going to read you verses 9 through 18 because there's one point that he makes in this, all right? God says to Samuel, Listen to them, but solemnly warn them and tell them about the customary rights of the king who will reign over them. So Samuel told all the Lord's words to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, these are the rights of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and put them to use in his chariots on his horses or running in front of his chariots. He can appoint them for his use as commanders of thousands or commanders of fifties to plow his ground and reap his harvest or to make his weapons of war and the equipment for his chariots, he can take 
your daughters to become perfumers, cooks, and bakers. He can take your best fields, vineyards, and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He can take a tenth of your grain and your vineyards and give them to his officials and servants. He can take your male servants, your female servants, your best cattle and your donkeys and use them for his work. He can take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves can become his servants. And when that day comes, you will cry out because the king you've chosen for yourselves, but the Lord won't answer you on that day. Now, obviously I tried to help you out a little bit with the repetition there to see what's happening. There's a reason the Lord said it this way. God is warning them, let me tell you what an earthly king will do. He will take. He'll take your sons, take your daughters, take your property, take your livelihood. You see the difference between God and what the Bible calls a false idol? In this instance, that's what a king is to them. Someone to replace God as their ruler, their representative, and their protector. And the difference is such a good warning to God's people. God has given them freedom. God has given them protection. God has given them food when they left Egypt and walked around in the wilderness, and yet they reject him because in their sin, they want something that they think they can control. And God is saying, you're not going to be able to control them. It'll go badly. You think he will give, but he will actually take. He will use, you want to use him to benefit yourself, but he's actually going to use you to benefit him. Look in the mirror, church. Because some of you are giving your worship to false gods, what the Bible calls idols, little wooden or bronze statues that promise certain fulfillment in life if you worship them. Now, we may not use the statues, but we still believe their promises. Take work. Work promises meaning and security. But does it ever really give that in full? No, you keep climbing and looking for a little more and a little more, and you're never secure until you get a little more. And it takes more and more of you to get it. It's a false God. Sex promises intimacy and bliss. Fame promises significance. Alcohol and drugs promise escape. Your phone promises escape. But just like the varnish wore off their false gods, so the varnish is going to wear off that king's crown and it'll wear off of your God too. Eventually, this God, whatever it is in your life, will take from you. Let me take, um, take drugs for a second because I've seen this in people that I love very much. I've seen it take money in return for pleasure, but then take more money to give less pleasure, demand more and more and give less and less. Then it takes relationships because you deceive others about how serious your problem is. And then they find out and then you break away from them. Then it takes your job. Then it even takes your brain and you can't think anymore like you used to. And then it takes your body as it turns you into a shell of the person that you used to be. And one day it takes your life and it takes you away from the people who love you. And I've presided over that funeral and I don't want to. Psalm 16, 4, the sorrows of those who take another God for themselves will multiply. It's not a maybe. It will. Some of you are like, well, I'd never go down that road. In love, I want to say, yes, you would. Yes, you will. Because we humans are made for a king. It'll be God or it'll be somebody or something else. 
and it will take if it's anything other than God. And I'm telling you, this is the spot in the sermon where some of you that have been walking with God for a while, some of you Christians are feeling this truth way down in your bones because you once did enthrone another king. You saw it take from you and take from you, but God in his mercy delivered you from that, brought you back to himself, and you want to testify, listen, don't go down that road. Christ really is better. Nothing else will satisfy. This is why I want you in community. I want you in a community group so you can hear some others say exactly that thing to you. Christ alone will satisfy you. That's the next point. They want to say, how do we go to God? Let's go to God only. Let's go to God first and let's go to God only. That's the testimony of the church. Go to God only. Don't waste your life on other kings. Don't waste another second. He brought some of you here today so that you could come back to God and here. Don't go anywhere else. Go to God only. He alone has the power to save you. Sadly, Israel didn't respond here in chapter 8. Their response to Samuel's warning is also a mirror for us. Verse 19. The people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we must have a king over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations. Our king will judge us, go out before us, fight our battles. Samuel listened to all the people's words, repeated them to the Lord. Listen to them, the Lord told Samuel. Appoint a king for them. They rejected the Lord's warning because they believed they needed a ruler, a representative, and a protector. They didn't trust the Lord to provide this. A ruler, a representative, and a protector. Been in church for a minute, you know exactly where we're going with that. But hang on. Something unexpected happens here. God grants their request, appoints a king for them. This is a <laughs> this is a real mirror moment for us. Sometimes God gives you what you desire to your own peril. He lets you chase after your desires. Do not mistake that for his endorsement of your desires. No, that's a sign of him releasing us to our rebellion, Romans 1, not a sign of his favor on us. Like, well, I prayed for God to give me a way out of my marriage because I'm unhappy, and God provided this woman at work that thinks I'm really funny. No, he did not. Do not put God's name on that. But Pastor Spence, you said God speaks through his providence. Yes, I did. And his providence never conflicts with his word. He may not stop you but that is not his endorsement and your sorrows are about to multiply. Now on the flip side, I was talking with Courtney about this on Friday as I was talking through the sermon. Listen, sometimes God refuses to give us what we ask for. And that refusal is a sign of immense grace from him. As I was telling to Courtney, she started singing Garth Brooks in our kitchen, something about unanswered prayers. It's a song if you're like, I don't know what that is, you're with me. I just had my spouse singing in the kitchen. I didn't understand it. But the point is, y'all, do not put God's name on something that doesn't line up with his word. You'll probably be asking God to save you from that very same thing shortly. Now, to show you that, I want to move over to chapter 12 to show you how this ends for Israel. Like I said, we'll cover chapters 9 through 11 next week and meet King Saul. 
But chapter 12 shows us another moment between Samuel and Israel. It's the bookend moment. Samuel is even older and is giving them his final public address. And in his final public address, he goes a little historical on them. He says, hey, have I led you well? Have I been faithful? Like, yeah, you really have. So, okay, well now let me remind you about your history with God. And he reminds them how every time they cried out to God, God saved them. When they forgot God, God handed them over. He brings up old memories of Moses and the Egyptians. He brings up recent victories over the Moabites. He said, here you are. The reason you're asking this king is because you're afraid of enemies again. So you've asked for a king when God was always your king. And this time, the response is different. This time, Israel pleads with Samuel, verse 19 in chapter 12. Pray to the Lord your God for your servants. That's them saying for us. So we won't die. For we have added to all our sins the evil of requesting a king for ourselves. They repented. They recognized their sin. And here, friends, is the mirror I hope you receive today. Let's go to God as repentant sinners. Let's go to God as repentant sinners. Can we just stop pretending like we're not sinners? God's not going to be mocked, y'all. And until we repent, he will not help. He will not intervene. His grace is for those who confess they need it. But when we do, watch the grace of God, verse 20. Samuel replied, don't be afraid. Even though you have committed all this evil, don't turn away from following the Lord. Instead, worship the Lord with all your heart. Don't turn away to follow worthless things that can't profit or rescue you. They are worthless. See him repeating? That's for emphasis. And then receive this. The Lord will not abandon his people. Because of his great name and because he is determined to make you his own people. Man, somebody, somebody needs that today. Even though, even though, verse 20, even though, it's a great hope of the good news of the gospel. Even though, Ephesians 2 says, while you were still dead in your sin, but God, even though you've done all that, even though you're in here today, having done all of that, deceived everybody played that game for how long come back through the process of repentance and then rebellion and then repentance and then rebellion again even though man don't turn away don't let the enemy just burden you with guilt and shame even though you've done all that no turn back and worship the lord your god with all your heart because the lord will not abandon his people not because of your name because of his name because he set his affection on you. Man, this hope is amplified and fulfilled for God's people today, the church. Look in the mirror and see a sinner. That's why the scripture tells you, look in the mirror and see a sinner, but then look again and see a sinner deeply loved by God. We're like Israel, y'all are prone to give our allegiance to little worthless kings that can't help us and are eventually gonna let us down, but there is a true king. Israel was looking for a ruler, 
a representative and a protector to fight their battles on their behalf. And of course, Jesus is going to be the ultimate fulfillment of all of this. He's the good, true ruler who doesn't take from his people. He gives his people his very life. He gives them his word to show them how to flourish in his world. And he gives them his spirit to guide them. Romans 5 calls Jesus our representative. He became one of us so that he could represent all of us. And he's our protector who fought the battle against sin and death, Satan himself, and he won. We sang it. Victory belongs to? That's what I'm talking about. Yes. Victory doesn't belong to us. It belongs to Jesus, and it belongs to us through Jesus. For God so loved the world. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. That's love. That's giving. That's generosity. That's not taking. He's saying as one and only son that whoever believes in him, whoever turns his heart and in full worships him will not perish, but have everlasting life. See, sinner, when you repent, here's the thing. It doesn't erase your wrongdoing to repent. See, God is a God of justice, and that's good for us. We want that. Your rebellion still must be punished. The gospel is the announcement that your punishment was transferred off of you and onto Christ. So your sins are paid for if you will receive it. This is the last thing I'll say to you about how to go to God. It's the why. Let's go to God because God first came to us. Let's go to God because God first came for us. While we, before we had a desire for him, he came for us because of his name, his great name, and because of his affection for his people. So whether it's your first time or maybe you're coming back today, for all of us, let's go to God first. Let's go to God only. Let's go to God as repentant sinners. Let's go to God because he came first for us. How do you go to God? You go to God through Jesus. John 14, 6. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So are you ready to receive his forgiveness? Are you ready to receive his rule in his kingdom under his authority and others of you i want you to I want you to come back home i want you to stop faking enough with the pride and faking it while your life is filled with rebellion if you confess your sins what does first john tell us you confess your sins he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness you see that's the story of that same god throughout the whole scriptures faithful and just because of his affection, because of his great name, his affection for you, he will restore you back into relationship with himself. I want to lead you in a time of just responsive prayer, give you a chance to respond to the Lord and what he might be doing in use at both of our campuses. Our worship teams will get in place and let that distract you. I want to ask you to just kind of bow your head. This will be individual this week. Just a chance for you to respond to the Lord and what he might be doing in your life. And I'll guide you through that. Here's how I want you to pray. First, I want you to pray. It's just a prayer of confession. God, where I have gone after other things instead of you, 
I'm turning back today. So God, I, I confess this is the thing that I thought would be what I needed. You tell them. Thought it was this. I went after this. I confess that to you. Tell him, I repent. That, that was sin, God. That was rebellion against you. That was sin, and I repent. Then I want you to thank him that even though, even though you ran after something else, he still loves you. Thank him for his love. Even though you read after something else, his forgiveness is still available to you. Thank him for it. Maybe you just need to receive it. If you've never responded to the offer of salvation laid out in scripture, today is the day. Do not harden your hearts. Today is the day of your salvation. You just respond to him right there and say, Lord, I, I believe that I am a sinner. I have chosen other gods. Maybe you didn't know to call them that, but that's what they were. God, today I receive forgiveness for my rebellion. I believe Jesus paid that penalty. I believe he died for me and I believe he rose from the grave. You thank him. Thank you, God for saving me, for forgiving me. So you Christians, tell them I'm coming back home. Even though I've been playing, I've been flirting with some stuff that I should not be flirting with. I've been running after some stuff that I know isn't no good for me because I lost sense of awe and wonder at your love. God, I'm coming back. Even though, even though, so coming back. Worship the Lord your God with all your heart. God, we are thankful. We worship you, Lord. Thank you for Jesus. Our ruler, our representative, and our protector who fights our battles. Thank you, Father. May it be our instinct. God, we want to ask you through the Holy Spirit to train us to go first to you, to go only to you, to go to you humbly as repentant sinners, and to go to you in full awareness of your love that you came first for us. Train us, Father, for our instincts to be to go to you, and may you receive glory from the people who live that way. We ask it in Christ's holy wonderful, resurrected name. Amen.